The following sermon audio is from The Source Church in Plainfield, Illinois. More information about The Source can be found at www.sourcechurch.net. Good morning, everyone. Um, Before we get started, just uh, please bow with me in prayer. God, we thank you again for um, today. We know that every day is a new revelation of your mercy toward us. So we ask for greater grace to walk in faithfulness with our God and with each other. Lord, I want to pray specifically for the Bratcher family this morning. Lord, I ask that you'd comfort Bob with the loss of his younger brother, Walter. We pray that you'd comfort Walter's family and that um, this would be a time when um, they would hear from you, God, when they would know you um, through your word, through your people. Lord, I ask that, um, you know, Bob told me he feels numb. I just pray that you'd meet him in that numbness. Um, many of us in this room know what that feels like. And I, I just ask, God, that you would comfort him, that you would encourage him, that he would know peace through you. Lord, we pray also um, for Judy as um, her daughter Misty was, uh, had, had infection after a procedure and it was quite scary. I hear that she's on the mend now. We pray that that really would be true and even that um, a scary um, situation would be used by you in her life. And we just pray that in all these things you would, that the Bratchers would have a keen sense of your being with them. You are... Emmanuel, God with us. And Lord, as we look to your word this morning, we ask for your help. We ask that you would leave us changed, that we would see you in your grandeur, that we would see ourselves realistically, and that you would fill our hearts with hope. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So next week, we're starting a new series on the book of Hebrews. Um, But this week, as you've probably gathered from our scripture reading, we've got a detour. Normally, we're a church that preaches straight through books of the Bible, and that's because we believe that God has already set the table for what we most need in how he's written his word and presented his word to us. But there are certain cultural blind spots in any generation that require us occasionally to take a detour, to use special care in making sure that the congregation understands what God's word says about it. So, for example, a pastor in 1850s America would have been irresponsible if he didn't at some point pause the regular routine to speak with urgency about the evil of slavery. A pastor in 1930s Germany would have been unfaithful if he didn't make it clear from the pulpit that Jewish people are equally made in the image of God and that the worship of a nation or of a leader is idolatry. Well, similarly, in our cultural moment... There's a need to make crystal clear that human life is sacred. All human life, from conception to the point of natural death, is sacred. And it's not just one category of life that has become cheap in our culture. We've gotten comfortable with gun violence, especially in the cities. We're no longer shocked when we hear about death by drug overdose. Suicides are also through the roof, and they're made all the the easier and more prevalent by the isolation that we've let permeate our society. And of course, in some cases, society is even turning toward encouraging suicide. Um, We've decided that a life of chronic pain or 
with certain limitations can't be worth living. And so we make it easy for people to rush toward a dark eternity. And where physician-assisted suicide is permitted, then a, a culture quickly develops where sick individuals are made to feel like they owe it to their family members to just get out of the way. Life is especially cheap when people aren't like us. It's hard for us to even care about millions of refugees in Eastern Europe or genocide in Western China or starvation in Yemen. Another group of people who aren't like us are the unborn. And I'll focus mostly on them today because they are the cheapened lives most broadly discarded in our immediate context. Now, I'm fully aware that at the very mention of abortion, some of you will feel hostile or apathetic or annoyed. This issue has been highly politicized, but I was planning this message even before recent political events. My goal here is not politics. In one sense, I don't give a rip who's in power because this isn't first and foremost a political problem. It's a crime of self-worship in which our whole culture is implicated. Democrat, Republican, rich, poor, man, woman, we are all complicit. My goal today is not politics. It's simply to make sure that God's people know what God's word says and also to extend his free and complete forgiveness to those who are grieved by their own part in the shedding of innocent blood. I recently attended a presentation given by a classy-looking older lady who uh, works as an executive at a major corporation in Chicago. And she shared that she had an abortion in 1982. And then she hid what she had done for almost 40 years. And she still cries when she talks about how she participated in the death of her son. But she also railed against many churches, saying... The respectable leaders of our congregations, they're too comfortable to plead with those in their pews who are like me, people who need to hear that child sacrifice is always wrong. Did you know that the majority of women having abortions in America say that they are Christians? 43% of women who have had abortions were attending church at the time. And nearly one in four women under the age of 45 have had an abortion. And so this woman's exhortation to me was, please come out of your comfort zone. Please don't worry about political perceptions. Please do be sensitive and care for your congregation and be a part of their healing. But please speak. And so those are my goals this morning. To plead with you to never be complicit in an abortion. To plead with you to uphold the sanctity of life by caring for those who feel all alone in pregnancy or in parenting. Who don't know how they'll make it or who are scared to sacrifice their professional or personal goals to raise a child. I also want to care for those of you in this room who have had abortions. Or who have encouraged a girlfriend or daughter toward an abortion. Or who are racked with guilt for your participation or for your silence. Our God is great and he restores He redeems, he brings beauty out of ashes. And so if you feel guilt or shame as we talk about these matters, I just want you to know up front that there's nothing you need to fear. There's no reason for you to hide any longer. And I hope that that'll that'll become clear as we go through this sermon. So Deuteronomy 21, 1 through 9. Uh, The book of Deuteronomy is an ethics guidebook for the second generation of the people who came out of Egypt. And as such, there are a number of ways in which it can be difficult for us to interact with this text. 
right? Um, these words weren't given first to, um, to the Christian church. They were given to the theocracy of Israel. Uh, in the Old Covenant, Israel was to operate legally with God as their king. And that's just, that's not the context in which we live, right? We live in a republic in which Congress writes the laws, courts validate and clarify them, the president enforces them. So we can't take these verses as legal instructions for how we're to go about dealing with murders in society at large, even though that's what they were for the original audience. Um, but even so, that doesn't mean that this section doesn't speak to us authoritatively as those who have come under the rule of God's kingdom. It's just in a different way. Secondly, we don't live under the old covenant sacrificial system. So please, I don't want anyone going home to break the neck of a cow today. And thirdly, we don't live in a context in which most secret murders happen by attacking someone in the open country where the victim could later be found by others. So there are some differences, but most basically and common to the original audience and to us, these verses do describe a situation in which people discover that bloodshed has occurred in their midst. Innocent blood has been shed, and the need for a process of atonement shows us that God cares deeply about the problem of innocent bloodshed. This is our first point today. The shedding of innocent blood is a huge problem in God's eyes. Scripture again and again affirms that innocent bloodshed is one of the things God most hates. And the groundwork for this is laid even as soon as uh, Genesis 1, where we read that God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created him. So that association of the image of God with, uniquely with people, not with other animals, with people, that means that we are a unique creation to be dealt with. Human life is to be dealt with in a unique way because the image of God has been imparted. And follow-up to that is Genesis 9, where it says, From his fellow man I will require a reckoning for the life of a man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. Why? For God has made man in his own image. So we have that foundation. But, but does this apply to the unborn? If we turn to Psalm 139, we, uh, we get a glimpse of what God thinks of the unborn, how he views them. It says, for you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret. In your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there were none of them. So we get this picture of God seeing and knowing the unborn person. He has a purpose for their life. And you can think also of um, in Luke when um, uh, Mary, pregnant with Jesus, walks into the home of Elizabeth, who's pregnant with John the Baptist, who is a prophet. And um, she, the baby leaps for joy in her womb. And then she gives a prophetic utterance celebrating um, the coming of Jesus. And so we see that John the Baptist could be a prophet in the womb. There's clearly a person here in God's eyes. And so that principle then is applied to case law in Exodus 21. It says, When men strive together and hit a pregnant woman so that her children come out, but there is no harm, the one who hit her shall surely be fined. And then jumping down to the end, it says, But if there is harm, then you shall pay 
life for life. So it's considered like equal. The, the life of a perpetrator would be given for the life of the unborn. Um, would, he would pay with his life. And Proverbs 6, 16 and 17 just summarizes, the Lord hates hands that shed innocent blood. And if we were to look at the prophets, we don't have time to do this, but in the prophets there are also eight different times when we're told that God's judgment will come because of the slaughter of innocent blood. So we have to understand that the shedding of innocent blood is not one issue among many. It is the preeminent moral crisis. And this is why two chapters earlier in Deuteronomy 19, cities of refuge are established that help to prevent people from being wrongfully executed for crimes they didn't commit. Because every human life has value. And God's view of life isn't utilitarian. Right? He doesn't characterize the value of life as being determined by, well, this life we can keep because it's free of disability. Or this life has worth because this person is able to determine their own future. Or this, this life has worth because it's a- able to achieve a certain level of pleasure. No, God doesn't see you know, the ability to live outside of poverty or receive a good education. Those aren't the things that make life worth protecting. And if we start thinking that only lives of a certain quality according to such standards are worth living, then we'll get ready because then the murder and suicide rates will really go through the roof. In the Bible, the killing of infants is the worst. Psalm 106 gives ten ways in which Israel rebelled against God and drew his fierce judgment. And the tenth and final straw is given in verses 37 and 38. It says, they sacrificed their sons and their daughters to the demons. They poured out innocent blood, the blood of their sons and daughters whom they sacrificed to the idols of Canaan, and the land was polluted with blood. Child sacrifice is the point at which God says, I've had enough. We are done here. You see, sacrificing the youngest so that the rest of us can supposedly flourish all the more. That's, that's not a new concept. In ancient Canaan and in Phoenicia and in Carthage, child sacrifice to gods like Moloch or, or Cronus was popular. And it was actually deemed a necessity for the survival of their civilization. In some of those traditions, babies were held upside down and their throats were slit. In others, the babies were placed into the, the hands of an idol and then they would roll into a giant fire and loud drums were beat to drown out the screams. Well, we're, we're much more advanced, aren't we? Instead of a bloody statue and a fire pit, we dismember or, or stab the brain of an unborn child in a, in a clean and sterile environment. We can't hear the screams inside the womb, but images do show them squirming to try to get out of the way. Instead of loud drums, we march to the incessantly loud cultural drumbeat of individual choice. You do you. Have it your way. You deserve this. Why have your dreams stopped by the burden of another? We've ditched the ancient superstition, but convenience and unlimited self-rule are our Moloch and our Cronus. We've convinced ourselves that abortion is the humane route because we believe that our perceived right to have unlimited access to sex allows us the the right to eliminate the natural God-ordained result of sex. But as Mother Teresa memorably put it, it is a poverty that a child must die so that you can live as you please. I also want to stress that the crime of abortion 
isn't any more acceptable when it's done early and with pills. Let's not deceive ourselves into thinking that this is something new and therefore outside the scope of biblical teaching. It's not new. Church fathers, as early as the late first century, were writing specifically to, to um, apply scripture to abortion. And Jerome in the 300s wrote, Some, when they find themselves with child, use drugs to procure abortion and thus murder human beings almost before their conception. And Bishop Caesarius, around the year 500, wrote, No woman should take drugs for purposes of abortion, nor should she kill her children that have been conceived or are already born. We have systematized and wildly promoted the shedding of innocent blood. And the God of life cannot and he will not turn a blind eye to it. He's a righteous judge. And he, and not our creative ethicists, gets the last say. In Isaiah 26, it says, For behold, the Lord is coming out from his place to punish the inhabitants of the earth for their iniquity. And the earth will disclose the blood shed on it and will no more cover its slain. The one true God hates the shedding of innocent blood. That's the first point we must see. And thankfully, it's not the only point. Secondly, in this passage, we see that God expects his people near scenarios where innocent blood is being shed to take responsibility for what happens in their context. Verse 2 says that the elders and judges shall come out and they shall measure the distances to the surrounding cities. And then action is required of that nearest city. They're, in a sense, by virtue of their location, responsible for what happened. And so they have to take a heifer down to a valley with running water and break the heifer's neck there in the valley. It says, And all the elders of that city shall wash their hands over the heifer, and they shall testify, Our hands did not shed this blood, nor did our eyes see it shed. And verse 9 says, So you shall purge the guilt of innocent blood from your midst when you do what is right in the sight of the Lord. So why all this ritual? One function of it is to allow people to feel economically what God feels emotionally about the shedding of innocent blood. This young heifer with a whole life of work in front of it, would have provi- it would have had to have been provided at a great cost. And also, uh, the time away from their trades for these elders and these judges to come and carry out this ritual, um, that would have represented a cost for each of them. So the ritual helped the community to realize materially the spiritual cost of a life and, and just to refresh in their minds that these events are not okay and we never even want to be loosely complicit in them. The ritual connects them to the unknown death. It also reminds the whole community, we do not shed blood and we do not turn a blind eye to things like this. And woe to us also if we diminish the value of even an unknown person's life. There should be a great dread and fear of the shedding of innocent blood. So, when we speak about abortion, don't close your eyes. Don't pretend it has nothing to do with you because blood guilt spreads through the community. It's not just a woman's choice. The reason we've swallowed that lie is that it's an easy out for our human nature because if you don't know the murdered person, you're tempted to just say, hey, it's, it's really not my business. But that's not true with how God has structured humanity. We are responsible for the shedding of blood in our midst. We're tempted to say with Cain, am I my brother's keeper? To which God would answer, yes, you you are your unborn brother or sister's keeper. 
and this principle of our shared responsibility for human life, we feel it in other ways, right? This is why we can't be ambivalent about a school shooting in Texas. This is why we can't be ambivalent about the dehumanizing effects of racism or drugs or poverty or horrid care facilities for the disabled or the, elder, the elderly. And in the same way, we can't be ambivalent about abortion. But where do we start? Because when we take in all of these arenas in which the sanctity of life is being compromised, it can just feel overwhelming. What can one person or one family or one church really do? Well, Scripture doesn't demand that we carry the whole world on our shoulders. But what we see across the pages of the Bible is this principle that the, the more vulnerable a person is, the greater protection they warrant from the community. Many times this is framed as God's expectation that we care for widows and for orphans. But we can broaden those, those terms in our culture. Um, in our day, many widows are just fine. I mean, we should still visit them and we should still serve them in what ways we can. But many times widows have their deceased husband's IRAs or pension. Um, our society is structured that way. Ancient societies weren't. Widows were just on their own. Um, but our society still does abound with younger women and children who are without belonging and without security. You know, the womb is supposed to be the safest place on earth precisely because these little ones are so vulnerable. But the vulnerability of the unborn is heightened when their mothers are also vulnerable ones. Women who abort often admit that they don't want this, but they're scared and they don't, they don't see another viable option. How will she provide for this child? How could she keep working or continue with education? Will she be rejected by family or friends who would shame her or encourage her to abort? If she has a child, will she, will she still one day find a good spouse to have the stable family she always wanted? So the, the fears abound. <clears throat> what does our care look like for these vulnerable ones and for the even more vulnerable ones in their wombs? So their vulnerability makes us focus on the unborn and on mothers in danger of choosing abortion. But as we see with this passage, it's also their proximity to us that makes us focus on them. In Deuteronomy 21, it's those who lived closest who need to respond to the bloodshed. And while we may live quite far from a refugee crisis or a war zone, we live close to the slaughter of the unborn. Over 46,000 women in Illinois are getting an abortion each year. That's like 126 each day. And it's happening quite near. Facilities in Aurora, Downers Grove, Orland Park. The closer you are to human suffering, the more responsibility you have for it. And this is why at the end of World War II, American soldiers forced Germans living in towns right next to the concentration camps, to walk through and see the bodies and to learn and smell what the, the smoke billowing over the camps had been all about so that they could see firsthand what should never have happened in their midst. The closer you are to a situation, the more responsibility you have. What might we do about innocent bloodshed if we were to really grasp what's going on all around us? Certainly, we can get behind the great gospel causes of adoption and foster care. Just as we have been adopted by our Heavenly Father, even so, we can set our love on children who, by nature, are not our own. And we, 
We can also support families who adopt or foster. We can encourage them amid the unique hardships, and we can surround their kids with love. Certainly also, we can make sure that our own kids know that whatever happens, whenever there is new life, it will always be desired life in our midst. We, we will come behind whatever accidental pregnancies among our families and friends and neighbors, and we will help to supply whatever is needed. They need to know that they would never be cast out or shamed, but where life has come to be, life will be celebrated and nourished by the Christian community. Wouldn't it be great if we attracted all the single mothers because the stories had spread about how this church had been a true family to many who couldn't fall back on a family? So we can prevent abortion by caring well for vulnerable families that we come across. But we can also get involved with crisis pregnancy centers, such as Birthright in Joliet or Caring Network throughout DuPage County and now in Bolingbrook, soon, soon to be in Bolingbrook. I don't think they're quite open. And these centers don't pressure women. They, they do offer them an alternative path. They exhibit real care for the women, even if they go through with choosing an abortion. And if she keeps the baby, then these centers provide counseling and parenting education, diapers, free baby items. They try to make it so that the woman is totally set to, she has everything she needs to parent well in the first years. They also share the good news of Christ, and often that has a ripple effect through whole families. So some of you may want to get involved with a center like that, either volunteering as a counselor or playing a role in the sponsorship of a mother. Some of you also may be led by the Lord to join brothers and sisters from other churches who go and pray on the sidewalks outside of abortion clinics. This is great work if it's done in a peaceful way with a focus not primarily on drawing lines but on heart change and rescued lives. We can also remember the unborn in our prayer meetings and on our prayer calls. But really, the broad prevention of abortion starts long before the pregnancy. It starts with how we speak about sex in general. Our culture believes that sex is a casual plaything, or a means toward accessing power, or a meaning of life in and of itself. And all of these approaches are fiercely self-centered, and they ignore any good and purposeful limitations placed around sex by the one who designed it. God didn't give sex exclusively for, for marriage because he's some sort of cosmic killjoy. He did it because that's the way it works. That's how it can be a force of health and wholeness. And it's in that covenant relationship of marriage that that, that was designed to be the safe place for new persons to come into the world because conception is kind of a big deal. It's not just a physical being that's produced by this sacred union, but it's a spiritual being. In abortion, we're not just discarding masses of tissue. Even science now agrees that at conception, we have a living, distinct, and whole being. And from scripture, we know that this also includes a living soul. So sexuality that could bring about such a, a, a distinct being, that is awesome, that's, that's a wonder. And it's not to be handled out of, as, as some sort of outlet or a venue for informal thrill-seeking. By teaching and modeling joyful yet purposeful Christian sexuality, we can present God's alternative to our culture's destructive use of sex, which then leads many to, to take the worst of measures to control the natural consequences of what they've misappropriated. 
We are created in the image of God, and our sexuality is not part of some sort of bartering system in the game of romance. It is sacred, and when we treat it as such, well, then it's far easier to uphold the sanctity of the unborn. And not only must we accept how God designed sex, we also have to accept how God designed us. How many sexual exploits result because we don't truly count our own lives, let alone our own bodies, as sacred? And so we grasp for some sort of pleasure to escape for a night or some sort of stamp of validation to our worth. Like young men who've been surrounded by unhealthy manhood and bravado, who they, they may also struggle with a low view of their own value, and so they try to prove their worth to themselves and to others through sexual conquest. Or young women who crave love, affirmation, attention from a man, maybe because of an absent or abusive father. They may be more inclined to give anything to fill that gnawing hole, even their bodies. So much of the prevention of an abortion culture starts with teaching a theology of creation, of personhood, of the image of God and humanity. Because people, all people are made for the divine. And they need to be taught this and they need to be shown this. And so faithful Christians are creative and they come up with any number of solutions to counter the culture of death. Even when it feels like we're trying to stand against a hurricane in the winds of culture. And even when standing like this completely disorients and interrupts our own lives. So in Rome, it was an accepted practice in the Roman Empire to abandon unwanted children in the garbage dump to die. And Christians, the early Christians, would go out and rescue them, even the deformed and unhealthy ones. And this is exactly the type of courage that we need today. Upholding the sanctity of life in one way often leads to opportunities to support it in other ways as well. Um, I know a church that actively seeks to, um, to help and evangelize refugees who have been settled in their community. And in one story, a family of Cambodian immigrants had nine kids and one more on the way. And the husband said, we have to have an abortion. We simply can't afford this. And the Christian friend responded, I think I know what you should do. You should terminate your 15-year-old. It'll save more money. The man responded, we can't just kill our kids to save money. To which the Christian friend answered, exactly. You have 10 kids and you're just deciding which one to kill. And the Lord used that conversation. The Cambodian said, I, I understand. And he translated this all to his wife, and she started weeping because she hadn't wanted an abortion. And then the church gave them a stockpile of diapers and resources and helped the family to find work. So that's just a picture. When we care about sanctity of life in one arena, it can easily bleed over into other arenas as well. Proverbs 24, 10 through 12 are verses that are well worth putting to memory. If you faint in the day of adversity, your strength is small. Rescue those who are being taken away to death. Hold back those who are stumbling toward the slaughter. If you say, behold, we did not know this, does not he who keeps watch over your soul know it? Will he not repay man according to his work? So the second point is just that God cares, because God cares deeply about the shedding of innocent blood, he expects us to take responsibility for the shedding of innocent blood that happens in our own context. Well, lastly, this passage shows us that the only resolution for the shedding of innocent blood 
is the shedding of innocent blood, innocent sacrificial blood. There's no forgiveness for the shedding of innocent blood except by the shedding of innocent blood. So breaking the neck of this heifer, I mean, that would have been a very dramatic picture of the cost of sin. Of course, the implication is that the animal is standing in our place. And that's why the elders wash their hands over the heifer in verse 6. The slaughtered animal receives the wages of evil that we deserve to have fall on us. And the purpose is stated clearly in verse 8. It says, Accept atonement, O Lord, for your people, Israel, whom you have redeemed, so that their blood guilt may be atoned for. Atonement is an old-fashioned word that we simply have to understand. If you break it down, it literally means at-one-ment. Atonement, at-one-ment. In other words, a breach has occurred in the relationship between God and sinners, and we are not one. We cannot be one because God is holy. And so something needs to happen so that God and rebellious humanity can be at one once more. That's the meaning of atonement. And sacrifices like this taught the people rightly about the need for atonement, but it was an incomplete provision from the start. And in Hebrews chapter 10, it spells out that it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. And by that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. So the will of God for Christ was that he be the final sacrifice, the one in whom all of these types and shadows of atonement would find their fulfillment. And on the cross, he dealt with our crimes of separation from God. The woman who aborted, the boyfriend or husband who encouraged or even pressured her to do it, or the one who stood silently in the background. Also, the sin of the parents who made the, the pregnant daughters feel their disappointment, or parents who never provided space for children to openly talk about these matters. Jesus also, through the cross, offers atonement for abortion doctors, and for the pro-abortion crusaders. He also atones for the sin of the right-wing crusaders who take up this cause with hatred in their hearts and condemnation in their voices. The shedding of Jesus' innocent blood is the only cleansing for abortion and its related sins. And these atonement sacrifices, they couldn't just be done willy-nilly by whoever wanted to. No, God's appointed priest would have to mediate the ritual. And we see that in verse 5 of our text. It says, Then the priests, the son of Levi, shall come forward. For the Lord your God has chosen them to minister to him and to bless in the name of the Lord. And by their word, every dispute and every assault shall be settled. Well, in the book of Hebrews, again, we learned that the Levitical priests we're just a foreshadowing of the great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. For we do not have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. A few chapters later we read, since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience. 
Jesus, our great high priest, holds out atonement for us. He is the only one who has the power to bless us in the name of the Lord. And as verse 5 says, by his word alone will every crime of violence be settled. So let's go to him for mercy. Celebrating the sanctity of human life is always an entry point for the gospel. Because everyone who comes to celebrate the sanctity of human life comes through the gate of repentance. None of us have done it as we ought. All of us have considered life cheap at times. So we need repentance, maybe for abortion, maybe for aiding and abetting this culturally acceptable sin, maybe for silence, maybe for reacting in a way that fails to care for the lives of those who promote abortion. Whatever the case, Jesus gives atonement. Jesus extends mercy. Jesus is able to bless you right where you are. Now, chances are that the lives of some in this room have been forever marked by abortion. The good news of atonement in Christ is that he's covered it. He is enough for you, for this sin, for today and every day hereafter. And if you're at all having a hard time believing that, then let's talk. I want to hear your story. I want to pray with you. Or if you don't want to talk to me, I, I urge you to share with a life group leader or someone else in the church. You don't have to feel guilty or secretive or numb or bitter anymore. Because the innocent blood of Jesus provides cleansing from the innocent blood of the unborn, that's exactly why the church has to get involved on this issue. Because Christians can't ignore abortion. Our God is at work in the midst of that brokenness. So he wants us to extend mercy to women who have had abortions in the past. You know, according to even government studies, abortion is consistently associated with elevated rates of mental illness. There are correlations with high levels of anxiety, depression, nightmares, sleeplessness, avoidance symptoms, and substance use. So these women need a loving community and the wholeness that comes only in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that gospel will only be effectively communicated if we humble ourselves and go to them, even if we're rejected, even if our words seem like poison to them. We must go to them in love. So God help us to do just that.